0: Joshua chapter 1, open up to Joshua chapter 1, and we're going to finish uh, Joshua chapter 1 tonight, which is amazing, that means we, we finish the chapter in three weeks, which for reality is unheard of speed, we've never done that, we've never done a chapter of the Bible in three weeks ever, so praise the Lord, we're, we're moving quick, but we're learning some good stuff. So we're going to finish off chapter 1 this evening. Let's start reading in verse 10 right now, right through to the end. It says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves. For within three days you are to cross this Jordan, to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God is giving you, to possess it. And to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them. Until the Lord gives your brothers rest as he gives you. And they also possess the land which the Lord God is giving them. Then you shall return to your own land and possess that which Moses the servant of the Lord gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua saying all that you have commanded us we will do. And wherever you send us we will go just as we obeyed Moses and all things so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. And anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command them shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would instruct us in your word this evening and that you would deal with the very depth of who we are some real key issues in our lives, Lord, some obstacles, maybe some compromises, some tough realities, Lord, that you would deal with those things this evening. And we've got a wonderful text before us. Uh, Lord, it's deep, it's rich, it's meaty, it's somewhat complicated in its scope and its context. And Lord, we're not a real intelligent people. So we ask that, Lord, you would give us understanding tonight, Lord. And... Uh, It's hard for me. I I cannot, Lord, apart from you, communicate these things. And so, Holy Spirit, that you would please anoint me to communicate your word. And that it would be communicated just as you would have it communicated, Lord, that you would put a a guard over my lips that I wouldn't say anything you wouldn't have me say. We want to hear from you, Lord. You understand the word. You wrote it. You know how to communicate it. And you know what our hearts need. So, Father, speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your Holy Word now. We ask it together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I hope you guys have been enjoying the book of Joshua so far. I have been loving the book of Joshua, and every time I study a book to teach it, I say, oh, this is my favorite book that I've ever taught, and I feel that way about Joshua, but I feel that way about every book, so it doesn't mean that much, but the Lord has really been dealing with me and teaching me some stuff, and there's been these great lessons that we've got just from the first chapter, and I want to set some of those before us this evening and kind of stir us up by way of reminder and maybe get us thinking about a few things again. You'll remember that last week I prompted us to uh, seek to identify the giants in the land that we had to deal with. You'll remember that the land of Canaan that they're supposed to go in and possess is analogous to the Christian life. It's a literal, historical, physical, geographical place, but it paints a picture for us. It's a foreshadow of the Christian life. And you remember that in that land that they're to go go in and possess, there were giants there, giants that scared them and intimidated them, giants that they would have to deal with if they were going to be victorious and experience the fullness of God's blessing. Now, being that the land of Canaan is analogous to our Christian life, the giants are analogous to some of the obstacles that we encounter in the Christian life. And so I asked you last week to begin to identify those obstacles that loom large in your psyche, that that just seem so big and almost insurmountable, and they're intimidating and a little bit scary. And the reason that I wanted you to think about those and identify them is for this reason. If you don't see them, you can't slay them. And the Lord wants you to be able to slay those giants by His might and His power and His spirit. But you've got to identify them first. And so then remember last week, I encourage you then to identify those and bring them before your heavenly Father. And say, Dad, will you help me deal with these? Now remember, the Lord's not always just going to rip the giants out of the land for you. He doesn't always take us out of our circumstances, but He is faithful to always bring us through our circumstances, no matter how difficult they might be. He's faithful to be with us in the midst of the trials and the tribulations and the battles with the giants. Amen? Amen. Now, the second thing that I wanted you to think about was I wanted you to identify any strong flow that's got you cut off from the promises of God. We got that picture from the Jordan River. You remember the context of Joshua chapter 1 is that the children of Israel are on the east side of the Jordan River. But the promises and the land they're to possess is on the west side of the Jordan River. And so they're cut off from the promises and the fullness and the blessings and the rest by this river, this strong flow in front of them. And so I I prompted us to, to begin to think about is there any strong current in the area of our life that's got us hemmed in and cut off from all that God has for us. Maybe if I draw a distinction between giants and the river, it'll it'll help you identify those things. You see, giants are kind of like Just those things that happen in life, you know what I mean? They're just those circumstances that just are. Maybe those relational realities that are just tough, or those physical realities, you know what I mean, or those logistical things. They're just the problems that we encounter in life, and they're not necessarily a product of any bad decision that you made. It's just the reality of life, these giants, these big obstacles that we've got to deal with if we're going to be victorious in our Christian life and experience all the blessings that God has for us. But the river is a little bit different, what the Jordan River represents for us. That strong flow that's got them cut off from the promises of God, that's a product of their bad decisions. You remember that 40 years earlier, they decided not to enter into the land because of fear. The Lord had delivered them from Egypt and brought them to the place of entering in in Numbers 13 and 14, but they were too afraid, and so they chose not to enter in. And now they're dealing with the consequences of that because by now they should have been on the west side of the Jordan, dwelling in the land, experiencing the milk and the honey and the blessings and the peace. But because of their decision, which was contrary to faith, which was a sinful, bad decision, now they're on the east side and they're hemmed in and they're cut off from the promises of God and the fullness of what God has for them. And so now maybe that helps you to identify some strong flow that's got you cut off from all that God has for you. It's a product of some bad choice you made. It's something that you've gotten entangled in. It's something that you've gotten caught up in, and now it's just carrying you away from where God wants you to be. You know, Jesus Christ will always forgive you for your sins according to his cross, if we ask him. He will always forgive us. And he removes the eternal penalty for our sins. But the eternal penalty, penalty excuse me, and the temporal consequences are two different things. God removes that eternal penalty, but he often allows temporal consequences for our bad decisions. Because by those things, we're trained. By those things, we learn. And so is, is there some decision that you made in the past and, and it's got consequences and perhaps you're still caught up in that wrong move, and and you just feel like, man, it's got me cut off from the fullness of life in Jesus Christ. Well, I want you to identify what that is. Maybe it's a sin that, you know, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12 that sin so easily entangles us. Sin is not only enticing, sin is captivating. It captures us. And once you're captured, once you're ensnared, sometimes it's hard to get out of that thing. Is there some sin that's just ripping along so fast and it's just dragging you down, keeping you from the promises of God? Maybe it's some relationship and you just know you're not supposed to be in it. And it's just got you cut off from the fullness. W- what is it? Listen. The giants and the strong flows that have us hemmed in and cut off, your Father wants to bring you through those things. He wants to deal with those things. He wants to deliver you from that overwhelming current. He wants to give you the victory over those intimidating giants. And so I ask you guys now for the second week, how's it going with the giants and the rivers? Are you letting your heavenly Father deal with them? Are you moving ahead in your spiritual life even just since last week by dealing with some of those things? Are you dwelling in the land or are you wandering in the wilderness? Are you going after everything that God has for you? Nothing more and nothing less. I mean, are you pursuing it or have you in some way settled for less than what the Lord has for you? I wanna set before you our map once again. This map is, uh, the red outline is the area that God promised to Israel. That's all the area that the Lord gave them to own is that giant red area. And it's huge. It goes all the way east to the Euphrates River and the Persian Gulf. It includes some of Saudi Arabia, much of Iraq. It includes uh, all of Jordan, much of Egypt, most of uh, Syria, all of Lebanon, and even some of Turkey. God was willing to give them all of that, that red outline. But all that they ever possessed, is that little blue outline in the left-hand bottom corner. Man, that's a sobering thought to me. That the Lord was willing to give them all of that, but they only ever took this. God gave it to them. They owned it. But ownership and possession are two different things. Now it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3, that God has given us every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. He's already given it to us. We already own them by the work of the cross. To tell us, it is finished. It's paid in full. Positionally, it is a done deal. But practically, the goal of the Christian life is to walk in that positional reality. That's the goal of the Christian life: is to walk in the promises, to walk in the fullness. And in the same way, God told Joshua, "Everywhere that your foot treads shall be your territory." They own the whole thing. They just had to walk in it and lay hold of it by faith. And so it is for us. Let me ask you, and I love you guys, I ask you from a place of sincerity. Are you laying hold of by faith the fullness of what God has for you? Are you settling? Are you compromising? If you've settled, you know it. At some point in your life, you gave up. You said, Lord, I don't want to deal with that issue. It's too tough. I don't want anyone to go there. I don't want you to go there. I don't want to deal with that. And you settled. Lord, I don't want to push ahead in that thing. It's too gnarly. I'm tired. I I can't. I'm just over it. Lord, I don't want to be reconciled to that person. And you settled. You surrendered. And you're living in the blue. God wants to give you so much more than that. And the rest of the book of Joshua is going to be about taking those things, conquering that land, and walking in the fullness. But there's a few lessons for us from Joshua's actions. I want you to notice that verse 10 says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people. Last week we left off in verse 9 that says, Uh, The Lord speaking to Joshua, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, and so the Lord encouraged Joshua in his fear, and the Lord said, go and possess the land, and the lesson, excuse me, that we glean from verse 10 is this, that Joshua took action immediately. That's a big lesson for you and I. Joshua obeyed the Lord immediately. He didn't hesitate. He didn't delay. He didn't vacillate. He didn't rationalize. He didn't try to justify. He didn't make excuses. He immediately responded to the word of God and the leading of God, and he went after it. Just like Abraham. You remember that Abraham was given the promise of the son, Isaac. He was given that promise by the Lord when he was 75. Promise was finally fulfilled 25 years later when he was 100. Not too long after the Lord gave him Isaac as a son, the Lord tested him in Genesis 22 and said, Abraham, I want you to go sacrifice your son Isaac. And we're told in verse 3 of Genesis 22 that Abraham got up early in the morning to obey the Lord. First thing in the morning, having heard his marching orders, he immediately went to go do what the Lord told him to do. There is a great lesson in that for you and I. Now the reason that these men were so willing to obey the Lord, absolutely, is because they had great hope in the promises of God. I mean, they really believed the Lord. Joshua really believed that the Lord would give him the land and be with him, so he went for it. Abraham had been given the promise that God would make a great nation from him, the Jewish nation, through Isaac. And even though God was saying now to sacrifice Isaac, Abraham's faith in God's promises was so great that he deduced, listen, if God is going to take this son from me, he already told me he's going to make a great nation of him, God must be planning then to raise him from the dead. That's great faith. And we're told that that's exactly what Abraham was thinking in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, where Abraham's life is recorded there. And so he got up early in the morning to go do that, and you know the rest of the story. The Lord was testing him, and Abraham got ready to do it, and the Lord stopped him and said, Abraham, now I know that your heart is fully mine. And the angel of the Lord said, the Lord will provide himself the lamb. It doesn't say in the Hebrew text, the Lord will provide for himself It says the Lord will provide himself the lamb. Himself the lamb in the Hebrew. That is why John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus Christ on the Jordan River, said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. God made himself the sacrifice. He wouldn't let Abraham give his son. God gave his son. That's wonderful. But I digress. The point is, that these men obeyed God without delay because they really believed the promises of God. They had hope. Now let me ask you, Christians. Is there anything that you know the Lord has asked you to do and yet you're delaying in it? Some area where he's asked you to get right. Something that he's asked you to walk in. Some strong flow he wants you to deal with some relationship he wants you to reconcile, anything. Is there something the Lord is calling you to do and you know that you're delaying? You might have great reasons for it. I mean, you could come up with all sorts of reasons why you should delay, but unless the Lord said delay, brother, you better get going. The Lord's timing is perfect. Be like Joshua. Be like Abraham. When the Lord speaks to you, put a move on it. Obey him immediately. Put feet to your faith. Go after it. What is interesting to glean here from Joshua is that he had a game plan to move ahead. He had a game plan to move ahead. Now, he knew what the Lord had promised to do, but he also realized that he had to respond to what the Lord had done and would do. Now, understand that the thrust of the Bible is what the Lord has done and who the Lord is. The thrust of the Bible is not what we can or should do for the Lord. Don't get that idea. That is wrong. The thrust of the Scriptures is what the Lord has done for us. Amen? Amen. But then we realize, on the other hand, that there is always a right response to what the Lord has done and promised and will do. And Joshua understood. The Lord promised to give us the land. He's going to accomplish His promise, but I've got to respond. And Joshua was purposeful about responding. He had a game plan. His game plan included issuing instructions that we see in verse 11. It included reminding certain tribes of their responsibility to the rest of the community of faith. And it included sending out spies to examine the land, which we'll get to in chapter two. These are things that had to be done for them to go in and to possess the fullness. Now, let me ask you. In your own life, what sort of things do you need to do so that you can possess the fullness of the land, so that you can lay hold of everything that God has for you. Notice, Joshua had a game plan. There were reasonable, specific steps that he had to take to walk in the promises of God. Is there anything that the Lord ministered to your heart that you know you ought to do? You know what the Lord has done for you, but how should you respond to the cross of Jesus Christ and the soon coming of the King? There's a response to that, people, and we need to be purposeful about it. Are you purposeful about your spirituality? Are you? Or or do you just expect it to happen sort of haphazardly? Are you lackadaisical in your approach to your spirituality? Listen, don't expect growth and maturity unless you're purposeful about your spirituality. That would be ridiculous to expect growth and maturity if if you just kind of wait for something to happen. I mean, nobody just all of a sudden has huge muscles by never working out, except for Pastor G, but he's a freak. (laughs) No normal people just have giant muscles and never work out. When you see that, someone has been purposeful about it. They schedule time. At this time, I'm going to do weight training. At this time, I'm going to train for cardiovascular. At this time, I'm going to do cross training. This is how my diet's going to be. And there's been some discipline and some purposeful steps that brought them to that place of being healthy and fit and strong. And the same is true in our spiritual lives. It is absolutely true. This is not an overly simplistic view of our spirituality. If we want to be spiritually fit and healthy and strong, we're going to have to be purposeful and disciplined about it. This is when I'm going to read my Bible. These are times when I schedule prayer. This is how I'm going to be purposeful about fellowship. These are the ways that I intend on serving the Lord in the local body and outside the four walls of the church. If you'll be purposeful about your spirituality, you will ensure for yourself growth and maturity and intimacy with the Lord. If you intend on being haphazard about it or approaching it in a lackadaisical manner, you cannot expect growth or health or intimacy with the Lord. It doesn't work that way. We are called to be disciples. It comes from the word discipline. Discipline. So having said that, let me ask you, do you have a game plan for your life in Christ? To be purposeful, you ought to have a game plan. No team shows up and goes out onto the field in the big game and says, you know what, whatever happens, man, just throw Hail Marys, we'll just all run for the end zone, you know what I mean? You do that in junior high. You don't do that in a real game. There's a game plan. Joshua had a game plan that involved three specific elements from which we could glean much. Joshua's game plan involved these three things. Preparation, accountability, and mobilization. That was the game plan that he had to go in and to possess all that God had for him. So that first point, preparation. We see in verse 11, Joshua says to the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, saying, "Prepare provisions for yourself, for within three days you're going to cross this Jordan to go in to possess the land which the Lord your God has given you to possess it." So there was some preparation that had to happen, and Joshua told the people, "Get prepared." And we can imagine, you know, what their preparations might have been. I don't know; it probably had to do with uh, getting prepared for some warfare. It probably had to do with provisions regarding food and and some stuff for their family and their livestock, so on and so forth. But regardless, there were provisions that had to be made. But I want you to take note of this. That part of the preparation was a waiting period. Part of their preparation was waiting until the right time. Now, it's a fact of the Christian life that we will spend time waiting on God. Because I've discovered something amazing in my Christian life. God isn't on my schedule. He's not on my time frame, you know what I mean? He doesn't go, okay, so Brett, what's your schedule look like? I'll work around it. I'm expected to be on God's schedule. I'm expected to be on God's time, not him on mine. (laughs) And so I found that because the two don't always coincide, I find myself waiting on the Lord. And the Lord is the all-wise God. And if he has us waiting, it's for the purpose of preparation. God never has us waiting because he's too busy or because he's tired of us. You know what, Britt? I'm sick of you for a while. I'll see you in a couple of weeks. That's not the Lord, man. If he has us waiting, it is because in his wisdom, he knows that there is a process we must go through to be prepared for what he has for us. And there's a wonderful promise that's given to us if we go through the process of waiting. It's Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. It reads like this. This is wonderful. Let this feed your soul. It says, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired, and his understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, He increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and even vigorous young men may stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They're gonna mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. That is a wonderful promise of the Lord for those of us who find ourselves waiting on the Lord. Perhaps waiting for Him to fulfill some promises that He made to us. Waiting for Him to just work something in our life. Whatever it might be, waiting for this certain... Whatever it is. If the Lord has you waiting, it's because He is working. Understand that. Now, none of us like to wait. We are into instant gratification and immediate satisfaction. None of us like to wait. Who shows up at their favorite restaurant and the hostess says, Oh, I'm sorry, sir. There's going to be a 40-minute wait. And you go, Oh, awesome. Nobody does. We go, what? 40 minutes? Are you insane? I'll kill people. I can't do 40 minutes. We don't like to wait. Nobody likes to wait. Waiting is work. But there is a work that is accomplished through waiting. And if God has you waiting, it is because he intends to bring you through a process of preparation that you might lay hold of the promises that he has for you. And what I find to be a problem with us is that, we just want to get to the end of it. And so we miss the process. And you see, God is all about the process. He is all about the process because He is infinitely and intimately concerned with every fiber of your being and every moment of your day. And so God wants to work in you and through you and around you where you are right now. He's got a process going on in your life. And wisdom stops, observes our context, Our relational context, our work context, it observes our church context, and it says, okay, Lord, what do you want to show me? What do you want me to learn? How can I be faithful today, right now, here? Folly is to always be focused ahead, to always be needing to move ahead and just get to the end of it. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said, tomorrow has enough drama of its own. He said, be concerned with today. Seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness, and everything else will fall in place, the Lord said. And so, people, we need to begin to embrace the process of waiting on the Lord and not miss the process because God is in it. And I find that as a person, that's hard to do. I'm always go, 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 and I find that I often get ahead of the Lord. God is outside of time and space and always has been, so he's never in a hurry. He's in absolute control, you know what I mean. He's had eternity to plan our piddly little lives, and, and so he's just not in a hurry. And so I think when we find ourselves in a hurry, we need to say, okay, is the Lord in this? Am I walking in the Spirit with the Lord or am I getting ahead of the Lord? And in my life, I've made so many mistakes when I get ahead of the Lord. That's when I really make big blunders is when I get ahead of him. It, it's not that the Christian life is, oh, can you run fast enough to keep up with God? It's can you slow yourself down enough to walk in the Spirit, to walk with him because he's in control. He's not in a hurry. And so we need to embrace that process of waiting, and we need to be mindful of how the Lord wants to prepare us for his promises in that time. And here's three cool verses on being prepared, on how the Christian can be prepared to possess the fullness of life in Christ. First Peter 1.13 says, therefore, gird your minds for action." Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we're told to gird our minds for action. What does it mean to gird? Sometimes in the Bible we see that phraseology, gird your loins. And that was used because in those days men wore sort of flowy Gowns, and nobody does that but Scottish guys nowadays, but they would wear these flow, uh, flowy gowns. And, and when they wanted to run or they were going into battle, they had to gird up their loins. It meant that they would pull up that gown and tuck it into their belt so that now they had freedom of movement. They weren't impeded by that flowing gown, they weren't going to get tripped up or trip over it. They were ready to run, they were ready for battle. The Bible tells the New, Christian, the New Testament Christian, excuse me, that we're to gird our minds. That is to say, if there's anything that has draped itself over your mind that impedes your life in Christ, gird it up. Get it out of the way. Be ready for action. Maybe it's some obsessive thought, so you're dwelling on it, and you need to take those thoughts captive into the obedience of the cross. Maybe it's some imagery that you let into your eyes and now it just seems it's burned on your mind. Man, you gotta deal with that with the Lord and gird that up and get that out of the way because that'll slow you down and trip you up. And so to be prepared as a Christian to possess the promises of the land means to gird up our minds for action, to be ready to run and ready for battle. And then it says keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a life changer. If you will fix your hope completely on the coming of the Lord, it will rock your world. I mean, if you will truly realize that the Lord could come for the church at any moment, that changes your life. It says in the book of 1 John chapter 3, those who have this hope in themselves purify themselves even as He is pure. That is the hope of His coming. It changes our attitudes and our actions. Man, I hope you guys are going to go to the Prophecy Conference Saturday. That is stuff that you do not want to miss concerning the days that we're living in. And the mindset of the Christian, the one who is prepared, is he wakes up in the morning and he goes, Lord, oh, come today, Jesus. And the next thing he says is, and Lord, help me to live as though you're coming today. And you see, that that, that gets us prepared. That gets us ready. That affects the way that we live. Another one is 1 Peter 5.8, which says, be, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We've talked about this one many times. But that phraseology there, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. It could be translated, be self-controlled. You know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self control. Life with Christ involves self-control. When we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and continually being filled by the Holy Spirit, some of the fruit of that is self-control. The opposite of that is the fruit of the flesh, which is a lack of control. Anybody here just ever just been radically driven by sinful passion, just driven by the flesh, and it's like a taskmaster just whipping you, just, and you just, just feel enslaved to that. And just out of control that's the opposite of being sober in spirit and being on the alert being self-controlled in the Holy Spirit and when we start getting controlled by the flesh and the passions of the flesh like that and being driven by that guess who shows up at the most opportune moment the devil man like a prowling lion seeking someone to devour so the prepared Christian is sober of spirit self-controlled and alert and the last one is 2 Timothy 2.4, where Paul writes, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. I love to be reminded of that, that we as Christians are soldiers. Amen? I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir. They know it in Sunday school. You guys don't know it. But as Christians, we're soldiers, literally, And as soldiers, we're going to suffer some hardship by definition. Hello? We're soldiers. We're engaged in a battle for the fullness of the land and the souls of men and women. There's going to be some tough times. Deal with it. Paul says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, here's how the soldier is prepared. The next bit of that verse. It says, no soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life in order that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. No soldier gets overly entangled, concerned with the normal affairs of everyday life because he's got to stay trained and ready for battle. And so it is with you and I. We don't want to become engrossed with the things of this world. Yes, we are in the world, and we've got to live in the world. If you're still alive, God wants you to be in the world. Don't feel bad about that. When he wants you to be out of the world, he'll kill you and take you to heaven. Until then, you are to be in the world to be a representative of Jesus Christ. But note, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be in the world, but we don't want the world getting into us. We don't want our hearts entangled with the things of the world, the philosophies and the ideologies and the values of the world and the worries and the concerns of it. Those things choke out the life of God. It's like a boat. You want your boat to be in the water, but you don't want the water to be in your boat. Amen? Amen. In the same way, the Christian needs to be in the world, but we want to keep as much of the world out of us As we can, because we're soldiers of Christ Jesus, we need to be sober and alert and ready. The second part of Joshua's game plan uh, from which we could learn much was accountability. First, it involved preparation. Secondly, accountability. Now, where we see accountability in this text is in verse 12 and 13 and 14 and 15 and 16, where he reminds these three tribes of their responsibility to the rest of the nation. He's going to hold them accountable for what they're supposed to do. And it says in verse 12, and to the Reubenites and the Gadonites and to the Uh, Gadites, excuse me, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, your cattle shall remain in the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. That's on the east side of the Jordan. But you shall cross, that is, over to the west side of the Jordan before your brothers in battle array all your valiant warriors and shall help them. He's holding them accountable to a promise that they made a few years earlier. There's a very rich context here that needs to be understood. So please turn to Numbers chapter 32. This will help us to understand what they're being held accountable for here. Numbers 32, we're going to read 18 verses. So church, I need us to pay attention. Let's not get lost. Let's follow. This is very rich. There is much to be gleaned from the story here, and we'll reference it now. We'll reference it toward the end of the sermon, so I really want you to catch this. It's the underpinnings of the text that we're studying in Joshua. Numbers 32, starting in verse 1. Now, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad had an exceedingly large number of livestock. So when they saw the land of Jazir and the land of Gilead, that it was indeed a place suitable for livestock, the sons of Gad and the sons of Reuben came and spoke to Moses and Eleazar the priest and to the leaders of the congregation, saying... Ataroth, Dibon, Jazir, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eliale, Seban, Nebo, and Beon. Wonderful names. The land which the Lord conquered before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said to Moses, If we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us across the Jordan. You got to underline that. They're saying here to Moses don't take us across the Jordan into the land of Canaan where we're supposed to go. At this point in history, it's the second wandering of theirs through the wilderness after they first refused to go into the land because of fear, not acting according to faith. Now they're wandering in the wilderness, and in that wandering, they had some battles and some victories, and they conquered some land, but it was land on the east side of the Jordan, part of the promised land to be sure, but not what the Lord had for them immediately. He wanted them to go to the west side into the land of Canaan. But they come to this area and they see, well, this is a pretty nice place. And and they were wealthy. It says in verse 1 that they had an, an exceeding amount of livestock. And they looked at this area and they said, you know what? We like this area. This is good for our cows and our families. We want to stay right here. This seems comfortable for us. We can do this. We can pull this off. Moses, don't make us go any further. That's what they're saying. Don't take us across the Jordan. That's too much for us. We'd rather settle on the east side of the Jordan. We want to stay right here with all of our stuff where we're more comfortable instead of being on the front lines and in the battle. Verse 6. But Moses said to the sons of Gad and to the sons of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to war while you yourselves just sit here? Now, why are you discouraging the sons of Israel from crossing over into the land which the Lord has given them? This is what your fathers did when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. So this is that first time that they were supposed to enter in in Dinit that we studied about the last two weeks in Numbers 13 and 14. Moses is going to summarize that now. Verse 9. For when they went up from the valley of Eshgal and saw the land, they discouraged the sons of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger burned in that day and he swore saying, none of the men who came up from Egypt from 20 years old and upward shall see the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob for they did not follow me fully. Except Caleb, the son of that guy, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have followed the Lord fully. There's a great lesson in that. I have written in my Bible, in my own handwriting right here, a little note right next to that phrase that says, 99% obedience is not obedience. The Lord said, they did not follow me fully. Verse 13. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel, and he made them wander in the wilderness forty years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Now he begins to address this problem with these tribes. He says in verse 14, Now behold, you have risen up in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to add still more to the burning anger of the Lord against Israel. For if you turn away from following him, he will once more abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all the people. Verse 16, then they came near to Moses and they said, no, we're gonna build our sheepfolds right here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. Look at that. They completely blew off Moses. They drew near to him and said, listen, Mo, we hear what you're saying, but we're not having it. This is what we want for ourselves. We don't want to go into the promises. We want to stop right here. This is where we want to settle. They made their decision. They weren't budging. Verse 17, then they say, here's the promise that Joshua is holding them accountable to in our text of Joshua 1. But we ourselves will be armed and ready to go before the sons of Israel until we have brought them to their place while our little ones live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the sons of Israel has possessed his inheritance. So they made this promise They said, we're not going into the fullness. We're not going to continue in the community of faith. We're settling right here. This is as far as we've gone. We don't want to go any further. And in that, they remove themselves from the further life of Israel. Later on, this would become a big problem in Joshua chapter 22. They realize that now their kids who are being brought up are totally separated from the worship life of Israel. And so they erect a false altar on the east side of the Jordan. And Joshua comes against them with the armies of Israel and says, you guys can't do this. But you see, they're scrambling now because they've separated themselves from the community of faith. They've isolated themselves because they settled while the rest of the body moved on. And now they realize that their kids are growing up without the knowledge of the Lord and the worship structure that he established for them in the land of Canaan. Real problem. But they did make this promise Moses is letting them do this by way of concession. It's not the Lord's best and highest for them. They're settling. And their promise is, okay, but when the rest of the guys go in, we'll go in with them and we're, we'll battle, but we're leaving all of our stuff behind. We're not risking our stuff. We're leaving our kids and our livestock behind where it's safe. We'll go in for a little bit. We're doing battle, but then we're going back to our comfort zone. And these become a great representation of the borderline Christian the borderline Christian the Christian who just wants to stay on the edge he never chooses to fully engage with the community of faith he never takes his God-ordained place within the body He chooses rather to settle just outside in a place where he can still see, where he can occasionally engage and be a part of it and contribute. But when his little part that he chose to do on his time the way he wanted to, when that is done, then he goes back to his comfortable life and does what he wants to do. That's what they were doing. That's the borderline Christian separating themselves, withholding themselves from the community of faith and from the fullness of what God has for them. Now, Joshua holds them accountable to at least that part, and that was part of his game plan was accountability. That needs to be a part of our game plan as Christians. We are to hold one another accountable, and we are to make ourselves accountable. If you don't make yourself accountable, you are headed for spiritual shipwreck. It is a sign of the filling of the Holy Spirit that you want to be subject to others. That you want to be accountable. It is a sign that you are walking in the flesh when you don't want to be held accountable. Don't mess with my gig, man. Step off me. Don't judge me. Don't ask me that question. Who are you? I'm doing what I want to do. Just step off me. You're in the flesh. The man or woman who's walking with the Spirit says, "You know what? Yeah, check me out. Man, help me. Am I blowing it here?" Man, I want to make myself accountable to you. I want to be accountable to the leadership of the church. I want us to be accountable to one another. I want to grow. Speak into my life. Part of our spiritual game plan for success needs to be that we make ourselves accountable and that we hold others accountable. It says in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 13, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away from the living God. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Notice, we're not supposed to become sin sniffers. We're not to put ourselves in the place of judge. We're to be encouragers. Hey, man, come on, bro. You know what the Word says. Don't, don't, don't settle for that. Don't do that. Let's, come on, let's, let's do what's right here. That's who we're to be in one another's lives. Notice that it says, lest we become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Sin is sneaky, sneaky. Sin is deceitful. And and, and that's what was happening. You know, the the, the Gadites and and, uh, these other tribes, they were totally convinced that what they were doing was the right thing for themselves and their families. It wasn't. It wasn't God's best and highest, but they were convinced of it. You see, their hearts had been hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The life of God had been, and the word of God had been choked out by the deceitfulness of riches like Jesus spoke about in Luke chapter 8. They were fully convinced, this is the right thing for us. This is what we ought to do. And they blew it, man. They blew it. And now Joshua is holding them accountable to at least engage with a community of faith. And so as a church now, it's our goal to provide opportunities for us to both Be accountable and hold others accountable. It doesn't happen in this context. There's a couple hundred of us here. It it, it doesn't happen at this time. You know what I mean? You can hide out. You can easily hide out. And you know what, man? I'm sorry. On a Sunday, we see a couple thousand people come through here. If you're not here, I'm sorry. I don't notice. Please forgive me. There's a couple thousand. I don't. That's why we have home groups. That is why we have home groups. Because in home groups, there's just a few people. And now if you're not there, somebody notices and they say, gosh, you know, where's Graham? Where where did he go? And they think, you know what? Let's call the brother and see if he's okay. Or or if you show up and and, and you're just downtrodden and you just look beat down, somebody's going to say, man, what's wrong? Can we pray for you? Can we care for you? Or if you're just a little bit squirrely, they're going to say, dude, what's going on in your life? And so because of that, what we want to do with those small groups is close the back doors of the church, so to speak. We want to close up the cracks so that nobody slips through them. And so it's a vision of this church that everybody that calls this church home has got to be in a home group. That is how we're going to experience the fullness of the land of Canaan together, is being in that context of accountability. And home groups are on a break right now, but they're starting up in a few weeks, and in the next three weeks, you'll have opportunities to sign up. We'll be announcing that. And if this is your church home, you need to be in a home group because we're not leaving you behind on the east side of the Jordan. We're not down with that. We are all going over into the promises. The third way or the third facet of Joshua's game plan that we can glean from, first it was preparation and then accountability. The last way is mobilization mobilization he mobilized them to do what they should do and that's what the closing verses of the chapter were about they were gonna do they were gonna obey they were going to go forward the people were gonna become mobilized let me tell you guys there has got to come a point in your Christian life where you become mobilized where you start doing now let me tell you the priority of things the priority of things is that we take a brand new believer and we make them a worshiper first And then they become workers in the kingdom of God. And if they're worshipers first, then the work that flows out of that will have the value of eternity in it. But there's got to come a point in our Christian life after falling in love with the Lord and becoming worshipers where we become workers in the kingdom, where we become mobilized, where we contribute to the body of faith. Are you a mobilized Christian? Are you a contributing Christian? There's a lot of ways to get mobilized. The best way that I could think of to be mobilized in this church is to be a part of prayer meetings. That is the number one way in my judgment for a Christian to be mobilized. The most powerful, potent, important thing that we do as a church is pray. It has the greatest impact and the richest yield in the spiritual and in the physical realm. We do ministry around the world in our prayer meetings. It affects lives more than anything else than we do. Didn't the Lord say, My house shall be a house of prayer? He didn't say it was just to be a house of preaching or a house of praise or whatever. He said, It shall be a house of prayer for all the nations, but we've got a problem. Too many people have chosen in the church to be settled on the east side of the Jordan, they refuse to be fully mobilized. And that's a hindrance to the fullness of the body. Church, I'm calling you to get mobilized in the body. One of the most wonderful ways is prayer meetings, and then there's mission trips. There's practical ministry opportunities. Right now, we need help in the children's ministry. There's your workplace. You have to be mobilized for Christ there. You got to be mobilizing your family for Christ. There's a simple act of mercy that can be exercised in the community every day and there's a simple communication of the gospel. But it was part of Joshua's spiritual game plan that the people became mobilized and so it should be for us. There is a period of preparation. There is a necessity of accountability and there is the moment of mobilization. And when we do those things, then we've got a real good shot at laying hold of all the riches of Christ, receiving the fullness of the land, everything that he has for us. And we really want to be mindful of not becoming those borderline Christians, those three tribes, the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh that that settled on the other side. Guys, you've got to know, though it looked great for them and they were safe and secure for them, it was not God's place for them. It was not God's best and highest. You know, I believe in the security, the eternal security of the believer. If you've been born again, you will always be born again. The Lord knows who he saves, and it's a sovereign work of his spirit. Once you're really saved, you are always saved. That's wonderful. We're going to heaven. But the degree to which you follow Jesus Christ in this life and experience the fullness of him in this life is entirely up to you. And in the gospels, we see repeatedly that people refuse to follow Jesus. In Luke chapter 9, he said, follow me. And some people said, Lord, I'll follow you, but first let me get my business affairs in order. Another one said, I'll follow you, but let me go handle this family stuff. I'll follow you, but let me go deal with these logistical things. And you know what Jesus said? Jesus said, hey, you know what? The son of man has no place to lay his head. And you guys are worried about those things. I'm done with you. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. No man having put his hands to the plow who then looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. I'm gone. They chose not to follow the Lord into the fullness. And Christians, unfortunately, do it all the time. Now, the Lord loves you. And and, and if you're the one who says, Lord, I'm going this far, and I'm not going any further. I don't want to deal with that issue. It's too painful. I I don't want to deal with those giants. I don't want to get through this river. This is where I'm settling. I'm staying in my comfort zone. The Lord loves you. Lord will still bless you. You know, he's got his very best reserved for those who follow him fully. He's got second best for those who don't. And you might be saying in your mind, well, cool. Second best is not so bad. The Lord's second best. I could do second best, but let me warn you from the scriptures that that's a dangerous place to be. Later on in Bible history, the Assyrians came to invade Israel. And guess which tribes fell first? The ones who settled on the east side of the Jordan. When the enemy came, they were the first to fall. And guess what? According to the scriptures, they never returned to those homes that they once clung to. They never returned to that place that they were so comfortable in. When the enemy came, they were the first to go down. And they never went back. Don't be a borderline Christian. Go after everything that the Lord has for you. Press on. In the walk. Listen, last thing I'll say. If our lives ended today, if they were over tonight, would our testimony be like the Apostle Paul's testimony in 2 Timothy 4, 7, where he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Let's just ask ourselves this evening. Would that be our testimony tonight if our life was over? Would we be able to say before God and before man, yeah, I fought the fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. I laid hold of the fullness. I went after everything the Lord had for me. Nothing more, but nothing less. I got through the rivers and I dealt with the giants and I experienced the fullness of life in Christ. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies was mine and I walked in it in Christ Jesus. Or would there be a tinge of regret of saying, gosh, I settled in so many areas. I settled and I missed out on the blessing." That choice is entirely ours. Let's make a good one, church, amen? Amen. Lord, thank you so much for speaking to us. It's wonderful to hear from you. It's great to be in your word. Thank you for making it clear and simple for us. And Holy Spirit, now, mine and probably your, Lord, favorite time of the service, where we just look to marinate in your presence, where we just expect that now, Holy Spirit, you'll come and finish the good work that you began in our hearts this evening. That you'll come and and really help us deal with the rivers and the giants. That you'll speak to us about those comfortable places that we settled in, but they're not your will. And so, Holy Spirit, we invite you now We invite you to come and deal with our hearts in the very depth of our being. Do a good work in us tonight. Lord, we really say right now, we want everything you have for us. We want the fullness. Help us, Lord. Strengthen us. We wait on you. Strengthen us this evening, Lord. Strengthen us to fight the good fight, to finish the course, to keep the faith. Help us, Lord. Saints, if you need help tonight, the prayer team is up here. You got problems they got prayers get up there the carpets are here for you to come and get on your face before the lord let him minister to you you give praise to him and let's celebrate communion this evening no better way to be reminded of the faithfulness of god and the promises of god than to take part in the body and the blood so let's do business